On Sunday, August 23rd, 2020, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, father of six, 29-year-old Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times. It's really hard to talk about. It's really hard to get into for a young man that was breaking up a fight, and then he was shot in the back seven times by the police. I just want to start this episode by just saying justice for Jacob Blake. And along the same lines, um, we want justice, we want equality, and we want equal treatment for everyone who lives in the United States and across the world who's ever faced this kind of adversity and maltreatment. And we hope that those in charge make decisions and change legislation in order to avoid situations like this ever happening again. I don't know about you guys, but I think I've had enough. I think we've all had enough. And we know that both the Celtics and the Raptors players have come out, um, as well as some other players, including George Hill of the Milwaukee Bucks, about coming forward and protesting. And whatever decisions they make, as much as we are NBA fans, we fully support any and all decisions they make when it concerns protesting, boycotting, whatever it takes to make lasting change. I just want to follow on from that by saying that this issue is a global problem. While it may be prevalent in America at the moment, everywhere around the world, there are people facing inequality and injustice, and we want change. We want everybody to live free of prejudice and to be able to live their lives in a way that is peaceful and in harmony with everybody else. I'd also like to give credit to the NBA and ESPN, both individually as companies, for allowing their workers to peacefully protest and to spread their message using those companies' huge social media platforms. Nobody should be forced to live in fear of the people that are there to protect them. And unfortunately, there are millions of people worldwide that are currently doing just that. We demand justice and we demand equality. I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. very early on a Wednesday morning for Tim because we recorded yesterday but some audio issues that happen from time to time when you do this many podcasts a week uh they they, they rear their head and that last night was one of those times so here we are again Tim for take two crazy early for you though man you're a soldier we <laughs> like doing like the duct tape over the islands like gotta really like I mean it is what it is <laughs> I apologize. Oh, well, face. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> I mean, it's midday for me. It's like twelve twenty, so uh, I'm chilling. I'm wide awake. I'm on my third cup of coffee. Subtle flex. Subtle flex. That weren't subtle. That weren't even humble. That was just arrogantly flexing on you. Look at me and all my cups of coffee. Yeah, I'm wide awake. What about you? Anyway, onto the basketball side of things. We're going to operate on this podcast like Thursday's game is going to take place, even though we do not know if that will be the case, as players still discuss how they choose to protest the Jacob Blake incident. So, under that presumption, we're going to look at Boston Celtics bench versus the Toronto Raptors bench. Now, the biggest issue is Toronto Raptors bench put up 100 points against the Nets bench the other day. I get it, it's the Nets bench. It's not really too hard to pull up 100 points against the Nets bench. Except no one else has done it all season. 
So it can't be that easy neither. Are you scared of the Nets bench, Tim? How are you feeling about the Nets? Not the Nets, the Raptors. Are you scared of the Raptors bench? To a certain point, yeah. I mean, Toronto has a very competent team. I think, as you said, going against the Nets, it happened in game four. And if we're being quite frank about the Nets, they had multiple players who ended up getting pulled from the bubble, whether it be because of injuries or staying up for other outside reasons. So their entire team, a bunch of players were missing. So I don't necessarily consider it the best meter stick. But regardless of that fact, it was still 100 points off the bench. And that in itself is impressive. If I'm Boston, I'm looking at that situation saying, I really don't want to get in a battle of the benches. Don't. Uh, If their bench is that capable of scoring, your best bet from a Boston perspective is just place, just lock down defense. Just like focus on defensive side. Try and just be as disruptive as possible. And you're going to have to try and stagger your starters. Uh, We talked about it before, but I think getting Jason Tatum out there with surround him with your bench players. So, you know, run your one star and then the rest is surrounded by bench. Jason Tatum is probably going to be your best bet there because he's an excellent facilitator. He can score at will and he's going to open up looks for other people. And if you're going to have one guy out there who's going to be handling the ball and being that main offensive outlet, I think he's your best option. And it's clearly worked so far. Um, You're not, unfortunately, you're not able to stagger like you were before with Gordon Hayward, where you could have two on, two off. So that is definitely going to be a factor in that regard. I don't know how much this is going to affect minutes, especially for Jason Tatum. I do worry that if you're going to run him into the ground a little bit there, but I also trust Brad Stevens to be managing minutes. I just wonder how efficient it's going to be with the bench. That is one thing to notify in this. This matchup particularly, I think the battle of the benches is going to be big. Yeah, the battle of the bench is going to be where certain games are won and lost. That's no doubt about it. This is the playoffs. I agree with what you said in regards to Hayward being gone means that the two-for-two staggering can't take place, which puts more pressure on either Tatum or Kemba to run with that second unit. Against Philadelphia, Brad went with Tatum and then four bench guys, and that unit was fantastic. You're surrounding a transcendent scorer with some very competent defensive players and an all-league level defensive guard in Marcus Smart. However, Marcus Smart will be starting, but he did spend some time with Tatum and the rest of those bench guys too. And then what you're doing is you're basically saying to Tatum, we want you to get your shot and as many possessions as possible and we'll help you lock down on the defensive end. Whether or not that's going to work against Toronto's bench, we don't know yet because Toronto's bench has guys like Serge Ibaka coming off it, which is why I'd expect to see a bit more Rob Williams in this round. His athleticism is going to lend itself to the way that Toronto like to play. Toronto like to push the pace and get, in tra- get out in transition. If Boston have a rim-running big like Robert Williams that can lock guys down on the defensive ends and alter shots and then get up the floor with the rest of the offense early, and slip screens and go for lob threats or at least cause rotations due to that vertical spacing, then that's going to definitely be an avenue that I'd expect Brad Stevens to at least look at with some extended minutes early in this series. I feel like Ennis Cantor, while he was fantastic in stretches against the Sixers, this 
series doesn't lend itself towards his style of drop defense as much because Marc Gasol, their center, will be the Raptors center, will be trying to play from the, the perimeter due to his three-point shooting ability. So we're going to see some changes in personnel. I'm expecting a little bit of Grant Williams at the four. I'd like to see some Romeo at the three or the two where he can start really coming off the bench and changing games with his pesky defense and his ability to find the right spots. Now, he doesn't shoot from those spots, but what he does is he makes sure his man respects him enough by scoring the occasional bucket. Brad Stevens said it the other day, Romeo is very good at just doing his job. And for a rookie, that's quite high praise, especially one that's not lighting the league up right now. What does concern me is how the Celtics are going to find points. Now, I said this somewhere the other day. I'm not sure where I actually said it. I think one of the keys to the series is going to be shot creation. With Toronto ranking first in the bubble since the seeding games through till now in defense and Boston ranking second, the team that can create consistent high-quality looks, and high-quality is the key word there, will be the team that comes out of this series victorious. Both very well-coached, very high-intensity defensive teams, and both of those teams have very talented shot creators that can look for their own scoring opportunities. Whichever one can do that at the higher level will be the one that comes out of this. Yeah, and you have an excellent point there when it comes to shot creation. I think that's why I think Boston's passing is going to be crucial. When they were really firing on all cylinders uh, in this return to play, they were moving that ball around at a pretty good clip. If they manage to get those assist numbers up like they did before, I think it's I think if they have 26 or more assists, they're undefeated. I think that's what the record's been. I'd have to look that up again. But it was something I saw during one of the broadcasts. And from a Celtics perspective, I know that we lost Javante Green to injury. I know he was towards your tail end of your rotation uh, when it came to your small forwards. Uh, But you're still looking at losing another player on top of Gordon Hayward. Gordon Hayward missing four weeks uh, minimum especially with that optimistic of a timetable uh, with that grade three ankle sprain. And now you have Javante Green also mi- missing time, and he's going to be out the rest of the season. I believe, was that a meniscus tear, Adam? Yeah, that was a meniscus tear in his knee that had a successful operation. When, when exactly did it happen? Because I feel like that came out of the woodwork. I don't think the press release actually mentioned it. I'll pull that up now. Yeah, I only, I only saw something, and I you only confirmed it for me because I was looking at like the overall roster. I was looking at stats. I was like, this is Javante Green's out. I'm like, Oh, maybe he's just, you know, getting rested or something like that. I didn't actually expect him to be out, out. Okay. So the press release that the Boston Celtics sent out and it's probably been released on Twitter by this point as well. But obviously I've got it in email was Celtics guard Javante Green this morning, as in yesterday morning, underwent a successful aroscopic procedure following a small meniscal tear in his right knee. The procedure was performed by the Celtics team physician, Tony Sheena. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I've probably butchered that. At New England Baptist Hospital, Green will rejoin the team in Orlando within the week and is expected to return to basketball activities in two to three weeks. So it doesn't say when the injury occurred or how it occurred, just that it has occurred and it has been successfully operated on. It's a pretty quick turnaround after surgery. I'm assuming it was keyhole. If it's a meniscus tear, what they're probably trying to do is fuse together the tear, so that would most likely be a keyhole surgery. Look at that fancy-dancy lingo. (laughs) Um, 
So for, for a Celtics perspective, I think they're just going to need to figure out what the rotations are. And as you said, I think it means more minutes for Grant. I think it means more minutes for Romeo. I hope that his wrist is doing okay. That's something that concerns me. Concerned me before, even before Gordon Hayward got hurt. So they're going to have to try and find ways to stagger these minutes, especially against a team like Toronto. They're going to want to try and keep their stars with some fresh legs. And I think putting out guys like Grant and Romeo is smart because those guys are going to have high basketball IQs, are going to have good decision-making. And as we've seen so far, especially in the leaps and bounds that Romeo Langford has made, uh, both are very capable of playing good defense. And I think against Toronto, uh, that's going to be crucial. Both of those guys are capable of hitting threes, especially Grant. Grant's three-point shot has really taken some leaps and bounds lately. And I think from a Celtics perspective, I think putting Grant at the four and either playing Romeo at the two or the three, those are very good moves when you're thinking about who can I put out there who's going to actually make some positive impact on the floor, isn't going to be bleeding points, and I don't have to worry about them being a liability. As you said, with like a guy like Ennis Canner, I think he's going to fall out of the rotation with this. I think he'll get some spot minutes, but not a lot. Um, going against two bigs like Serge Ibaka and Marc Gasol does him no favors. At least with Joel Embiid, the game is a little bit more slowed down. They're able to post up. He's able to use his physical frame to you know, deter him off shots. But with both Ibaka and Gasol, you put either of those guys on the Celtics, and they're probably the best big on the roster if we're being quite frank. And from a Celtics perspective, both of those guys are three-point shots. And if they're staggering those guys in terms of minutes, uh, that's going to create some problems. Both of those guys are very, very good. And if either of those guys get hot, especially in the pick and roll, they're going to be a serious problem. Marcus Gasol is a massive three-point shot. He has a ridiculous shot from three, especially for a big. He's a guy that I would worry about, too. Yeah, I mean, Gasol shooting, what was it, 38.5%, I think it was. Don't quote me on that, but it's around a 38% mark from deep. I think that's on like three and a half attempts per game as well. So it's a, it's a very good, very decent sample size to be scoring that type of clip on. I'd be concerned to see them roll out Ibaka and Gasol together as well because there would be a lot of pressure on Jason Tatum and Daniel Tice to contain that, that matchup. I feel like Gasol's got the strength advantage over Daniel Tice probably threefold. But there again, so did Joel Embiid. If that happens, then maybe you do see some canter minutes. But again, you don't want to be pushing canter up to guard the perimeter. And that's what Gasol's going to force you to do. And that is where Daniel Tice is actually a positive for the Celtics. And I say actually like it's an insult to his defense when he's a very, very good defensive player. I just feel like against Embiid down on the low block, that was what you have Cantor on the roster for. And for very good long stretches in multiple di different games in that series, Cantor contained Embiid to the best of his ability and done a fairly decent job in doing so. He doesn't get enough credit for how he defends in the paint. Ibaka, I feel like JT can have his number. I'm not going to lie. I feel like JT can make sure that he doesn't get too hot. But again, if it goes to the low post, Ibaka's got the strength advantage there to go to his post moves. We forget Ibaka's been in the league long enough that he probably, if I remember, started as a post player and then extended his game out. I may be wrong there. It's not no, like I believe you're like pretty much hammer meets nail on that one. So, you know, you don't want to be putting a guy like Ibaka down on the low post with Tatum guarding him. Tatum has the length advantage, but Ibaka has the experience, the post moves and the strength to get, get the better end of that matchup. 
overall, though, I mean, you know, one thing we haven't touched on is Kyle Lowry being day to day. Now, I said this on the podcast that died because the, the recording quality just didn't work. Day to day, Nick Nurse has turned around and said that he believes that Kyle Lowry will be a go for game one. Now, that does not mean that Kyle Lowry will be playing 30 plus minutes in game one. It just means that he will be active on that roster. That could be as a, man, a six man off the bench a minutes restriction like we saw Kemba have to begin the seeding games or he may just be ramped straight up to those 30 plus games a minute 30 plus games a night 30 plus minutes a night there we go got it out in the end <laughs> but you just don't know how that's going to come Nick Nurse is a very intelligent coach and if he feels like Carl Lowry gives them more value in games three and four by being on that minutes restriction in games one and two, then that's what they're going to go for. This isn't a series you're going to expect to be finished in four games. And with that, go ahead. I was going to say one last thing with the Lowry situation. I think with Nick Nurse, the only thing that would make me hesitate with that is just there were minutes restrictions in the All-Star game. We really saw guys play over that, specifically Kemba Walker. Um, Maybe with Kyle Lowry, he's going to be a little bit more careful, and hopefully he is. But as you said, I think it's a battle of the series. I think it's going to be going way past four games for everybody's sake. I think we're looking at at least maybe six or seven games. Okay, guys, we're going to bounce to break. And then when we come back, we're going to have a quick look at what's going around the league. This is a quick hitting episode simply because it's never as good the second time around. Tim, Brett Brown ate his last ever Philly cheesesteak by all accounts. Again with the cheesesteaks, man. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about Philly. Was it that he rung the Liberty Bell? He's been liberated from being the coach of that franchise, that inept front office. Is that more apt? What would you have preferred, the Liberty Bell? <laughs> Either way, that was pretty, pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I tweeted about it when it happened. I never want to see anybody lose their job, whether it's a rival coach, GM, training staff. I'm very big on that somebody's livelihood, regardless of the income that you make while you're doing that job. I get it. Brett Brown's probably made multiple, multiple millions while he's been in that role. And he's most likely very comfortable and can go a few years without working and not really have to worry. But regardless, that's still your livelihood. That's foundations that he's built throughout the process, throughout all that losing. He's been there. He's been a very consistent member of that organization for a very long time at this point. So to lose your job, based on other people's ineptitude, which I get it, that's what happens with coaches. You take the rap for the front office making the bad calls. Sucks, but that's just the way it is. But I don't want that to be, I mean, I'm a Celtics fan, so maybe I do want that to be the only move that gets made because then Philly aren't a problem. But I like competitive matchups. I like it when the NBA is competitive and when rivals can actually run each other seven games and you really ride that roller coaster. So I don't want that to be the only head that rolls in Philly. And as you said, with with the situation there, it gets more and more complicated. You know, originally they had Sam Hinkie, and then Sam Hinkie was tossed out, and that kind of was supposed to be the end of, quote, unquote, the process. And kudos to Brett Brown. He's been there since 2013, and you can clearly tell he's been there since 2013 because his overall record for Philly is 221 wins, 344 losses in the regular season. And, you know, the furthest they came in the playoffs was 
that uh, game seven dribbler versus Toronto, that four bouncer that finished them off. And now they're looking at a clean sweep that happened against the Celtics. So he was kind of a dead man walking in that situation. Um, the one thing I will say that is unfortunate with this is you kind of saw a little bit of slander coming out of Philly right around or right before he was getting fired, including bringing up the Jimmy Butler situation, um, saying that Jimmy Butler ended up leaving uh, due to a rift between him and Brett Brown. I do want to say in terms of what Philly has done, it seems to me that Philly has gone out and traded for or paid guys in free agency that have big names and just did it regardless of fit. As you said, I don't think it's a matter of, yes, this is all Brett's Brown fault. He's the scapegoat. He's the reason why this isn't working. You know, they're going to end up bringing in another coach to see if it's going to work, see if they can make the duo of Simmons and Embiid work. But also they just need to adjust the way that they're playing. You know, Simmons needs to add a three-point shot. It needs to happen. And it's unfortunate that Simmons' injury ended up happening and everything, but I think if we're sitting here going revisionist history and saying, well, if Simmons was there, you know, this series goes five or six games, I really, I think at best it was going to go five because of the way that Philly performs in the playoffs, especially against Boston. I just didn't see it going any further. Um, There are serious problems with their roster construction, massive problems. They've got over 200 million tied up between Tobias Harris and Al Horford and Al Horford can't play on the floor at the same time or play to his optimal potential with Embiid there. Those guys can't play together. And those are your two best bigs on the roster. So now you have to figure out, are you going to be able to jettison Al Horford? Are you going to be able to move around or maybe try and change things up with Tobias Harris? There's a whole slew and litany of issues that aren't going to get solved. And, you know, Elton Brand comes out and says that we're going to do X, Y, and Z to take care of our guys, and we're going to try and make it work between uh, Ben and Joel. Well, if you're going to do that, then you need to figure out how you're going to restructure your roster because you have no cap space. And this is the issue that I find with it. Like, they went ahead and they signed and trade Jimmy Butler away to go ahead and get Josh Richardson because Jimmy Butler wanted out. And they really ideally should have let Tobias Harris walk in free agency and just held on to Jimmy Butler because he's actually going to hit your shots for you. But I do not envy the next coach that has to step in that Philly situation because if this is the kind of accountability you're going to get from their front office, man, that's bad. You're just going to constantly scapegoat your coaches. They need to restructure entirely in the front office and with their roster. I completely agree. I do disagree with you saying if Ben Simmons was active, it would have only gone five. I could see it going six or seven, just simply because Ben Simmons would be able to penetrate far better than anybody else that was on that Sixers roster. And he would also be able to have contained Kemba a lot better than what anybody on that roster actually did, because he's the only one with the speed levels to actually keep up with Kemba when Kemba turns the Jets on. Looking at other other places around the league, yesterday the Mavericks lost to the Clippers to give the Clippers a 3-2 lead. Rick Carlisle was ejected in that game. Now, I had a press release. I woke up to this this morning because that game started at like 2.30 a.m. for me. So, you know, I ain't watching that. The press release was basically just an interview with the official that ejected him. And the simple reasoning was he received two technical... So, Rick Carlisle received two technical fouls for excessive arguing and profanity, which is automatic ejection. Around that sequence of events, there was actually not a sequence of events according to referee Fitzgerald. Duck Rivers requested the timeout and Pat Fisher recognised the timeout prior to Tim Hardaway receiving the ball. 
This was confirmed via video post game. So by all accounts, Rick Carlisle was not happy that the timeout happened when one of his players was in possession, considering it was a timeout for the opposing team. He thought that the timeout was called when Hardaway had the ball, and he let the rest know he weren't happy. Rick Carlisle got bounced. This is a competitive series. I'm expecting Milwaukee, no, I'm expecting Dallas to come back and tie that up at 3-3 and take that to a game seven. At which point, it's anybody's series. I do feel like Paul George is having another one of those playoff performances where he's not living up to expectations. But they have Kawhi Leonard concerning on any given point. Who do you see coming out of this, Tim? Seriously? I'm a little torn. We talked about this before when I was talking about that battle of L.A. I really want to see Lakers versus Clippers in the playoffs. I think that's a really good ticket there. So I think... I think at the end of the day, that will be the matchup, but I also really do want to root for the Mavs as well. I really like Luka Doncic. I like Kristaps Porzingis. I like that duo there, and I think that Dallas is putting together something special. But I don't know. I, I think it's going to be the Clippers, uh, especially if Paul George can get his crap together. <laughs> and I also think Kristaps Porzingis' health is going to be a big crucial thing here. He did not play game five, so if he plays game six – I think that will end up being a tipping point, having Porzingis in there, especially if he's able to play, you know, even at 80, 90% speed. Just anything that he can give you that's going to actually be a positive addition to the floor will be the difference maker in that game. Uh, it also seems like it cut a little chippy. I know Marcus Morris stepped on Luka Doncic's ankle, basically gave him like a flat tire, and it was on the ankle that had the sprain in his his foot popped out of his shoe. So there's some words said after the game um, during the post-game presser. And basically, Lucas said, like, I don't think it was intentional. I really don't know, but I don't want to talk to him about it. You know, he's, you know, talking to me all game and saying all these terrible things. So I, you know, I don't want to talk to him. So there's clearly some trash talk going on. Uh, so uh, that makes for some good basketball, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, look, man, Morris is an enforcer. He went on Twitter afterwards and said that it was never intentional. Whether it was or it wasn't, we won't know. We can only surmise. So I don't want to be putting words in anybody's mouth. I haven't seen the actual incident myself yet. I, I woke up and started doing basketball-related research, but I haven't got around to that at the moment. So for me to comment on it would be negligent. Which leads us to our last team that I want to discuss before we let these people get on with their day which is the Utah Jazz versus Denver Nuggets. The Jazz took a 3-2 lead against the Nuggets. No, sorry, the Nuggets pulled it back. Sorry. The Nuggets pulled it back and now are only behind by a game, winning 117 to 107. Some big performances from two different players in the Nuggets uniform, in Nikola Jokic going for 31 points and Jamal Murray going for 42. This series has been a war all the way through. Michael Porter Jr. is showing that he's a really good offensive player, but he's a huge, and I mean ridiculously big, liability on the defensive end. Utah, Donovan Mitchell, now I've been very vocal on my other podcast about how Donovan Mitchell needs to show more than what he did in his rookie season because at the moment, up until the, the bubble, I was personally of the opinion that Donovan Mitchell was living off that rookie season. His scoring numbers have gone up each year, but so is his usage rate, so they equate to very similar scoring uh, points per possession. He's proving me wrong. I'm slowly becoming a believer that Donovan Mitchell is actually as good as what everybody says he is. My reason is before were purely statistical points per 100 possessions. That is now improving. He's showing he can score in a multitude of ways that I had not seen him score. Don't get me wrong. I don't watch every 
Utah game. I have no need to watch every Utah game. And anybody that says they watch every game in the league is talking out their behind unless they do this full-time or close to full-time. I personally want Denver to come out of this series just because I like the way that they've run Jokic at the point. Whether or not that actually happens with Utah only needing to win one more game and Denver needing to win two remains to be seen. What's your thought on that series, Tim? I'm also pulling for Denver. I also think that Denver is a serious threat in the West. I don't know how much of this is just getting back into the swing of things or if Denver kind of would just started off slow, but I thought Denver was really, really hot during the regular season and they are a very tough team. I kind of expected them to take it more to the jazz this series than the other way around. And the jazz have really, really stepped up their play. Um, and I do think a, a good chunk of that also has to be credence to Donovan Mitchell so far in this series. He's had a couple seriously historical games. Uh, and what he get? He was like the first player to get over 50 in a playoff game since Michael or joined a couple. He was like the most since for the Jazz. I think he's, he broke the record that was set by Carl Mailman Malone for most points in a playoff game. And I think that was game one or game two. So they've been doing right out the gate. And if if I'm Denver, I personally would try and figure out a way to try and mask um, MPJ's defensive liabilities because the fact that he ended up slipping the way he did in the draft because of his back injuries and he's coming out of the gate, coming out this strong on the offensive side, they could seriously have – a legitimate super team if they develop those guys right. Jamal Murray coming off that extension had a really huge game uh, versus the Jazz. And now you're looking at a situation where you've got to take back-to-back games. Fortunately, you know, this is the bubble. You're not looking at playing one at home, one on the road, or anything like that. But you really got to bring it against this Jazz team because clearly, like, the Jazz are giving them all kinds of issues. So that wraps us up for today, guys. We'll be back again on Friday when a game will or will not have taken place and we will react accordingly depending on which way that goes. I have one question for everybody, for all our listeners. Can we please demand justice for Jacob Blake? Thank you.